I'll tell you, joy is the key to a proper attitude in life. And brethren, we're all going to face all kinds of trials and struggles. It's not all a picnic. It's not all a, it's not all a hallelujah shouting match. I know that, friend. But joy is not created by possessions. Joy is not created by positions. Joy is created by a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And a good dose of holy joy would do us all well. And I'm not talking about silly putty religion here, brother. I'm talking about something that comes but from being rightly related to God and being in the presence of God. I believe of all the people alive on planet Earth today, we should not be wringing our hands and worrying about the future and worrying about the end of the world and worrying about this and worrying about that. I believe of all the people in the world, we should have the joy of God in these latter days unparalleled to the rest of our society. All right, good to see everybody. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're starting a new series today uh, in this New Testament book written by the Apostle Paul. And we're going to uh, really use this, uh, this one book of the Bible to, uh, to feed ourselves for the entire fall season. And we're calling it Reasons to Rejoice. But we're going to read one verse this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, then we have supplied a few Bibles underneath the center column of seats. You're welcome to grab that Bible and use it as we're working through the Scripture this morning. I did not look up the page number, but the, there's a table of contents in front of every Bible because it's a book. And uh, you're looking for the book of Philippians. It's going to be in the latter half of your Bible. One verse together, chapter 1, verse 6. Let's read these out loud together. Here we go. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this day. What a beautiful day you've given us. The sun is shining. Um, it's lovely weather outside. It reminds us that fall is coming. Uh, some of our most favorite, uh, definitely the most beautiful time of year here in, in Virginia. Uh, and even as we thank you for the beauty and the, the, the weather forecast of where we live, we're, we're mindful very mindful of those who are in harm's way uh, post uh, Hurricane Harvey and now in the likes of uh, Hurricane Irma hitting uh, parts of all of Florida. And so God, we pray, as we prayed Friday at our prayer and worship gathering, firstly, the, the safety and protection of those who are in harm's way. God, would you guard those who, in many cases, some who don't even have sense to guard themselves. God, would you, uh, would you help those who are in harm's way and, and protect them from the, the natural uh, disaster that perhaps is about to happen. God, we pray for mercy that you would spare uh, not just people in their lives, but property as well. And of course, property can be replaced, but uh, we do um, just pray for, uh, for people who stand the chance of losing everything that they call home. God, that you would have mercy and, and guard and protect and, and bring comfort uh, through what is just now beginning and it's going to be a, a very terrible storm. And so if, as we open the scriptures here, Lord God, we pray, God, that we would sense your presence, that we would hear your voice speaking to us individually, but also corporately, and that we would, um, under the hearing of your gospel, be changed. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, we're starting a, a new series today. It's going to take us through the whole fall. And if you're new to your Bible, perhaps it would be... Uh, appropriate for me to talk a little bit about the background to this book. So that really is what we're going to do today. We're not going to dive into Philippians 
quite yet. We're actually going to look at another book that gives us the preface to everything that we're reading in, uh, in Philippians. But firstly, the author. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, then uh, the book of Philippians is written by one of the probably one of the most prominent people in all the Bible besides Jesus himself, Paul, the apostle Paul. Paul's Jewish. He's a Hebrew, and he was born in the lineage of some of the most important people in the history of the Jewish faith, particularly the lineage of King Saul. By <clears throat> The Bible tells us that actually Paul's name was Saul, and he was named in, in the likes of King Saul before Jesus came and, and really changed not only his life, but his name as well. By profession, Paul was a Pharisee. Pharisees were a combination of religious leader and, and politician. They sort of wrote the religious rules for the Jewish nation. Paul is infamous because he was not just a Pharisee, he was zealous as a Pharisee. And in several places in the Bible, he tells us about his resume and, and all the things that uh, that made him who he was. He's trained under uh, the, the, the foremost of, of rabbis, a guy named Gamaliel, which means that he, uh, he was gifted just naturally with intellect and, and knowledge, and, and he was zealous for his own faith. If Paul were alive today, we would liken him to the white supremacists and the nationalists that were, protested, that were protesting in, in Charlottesville. He would be that adamant about his own religion and his own his own faith. And so in the process of, of doing what Paul learned to do best before he met Christ, he was headed to Damascus and he was going to persecute Christians, to persecute as in he was going to capture them, bring them probably back to Jerusalem and then oversee their execution. Paul uh, has an encounter with Jesus and Jesus does what he does to many of us when he's trying to get our attention. In, in Paul's case, he does something extreme. He knocked him off of his horse. Uh, this bright light comes to, to Paul, and Jesus speaks to him out of that. And in an instant, Jesus changes Paul's life in the direction of, of Paul's life, changes his name, and really tells him in that moment that he would be used not to persecute Christians anymore, but to uh, advance God's kingdom and to make disciples amongst Jews, but foremost amongst the Gentiles. And in the process of that, knocking him off his horse and, and Jesus introducing himself to Paul, uh, Jesus changes his life and reorients him. And if you're a Christian here and you've been changed at all by Jesus, really he does nothing to Paul that he already hadn't done to you. I mean, think about how you came to faith, the whole process of you being introduced to Christianity. Uh, God calls you to himself by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus chases you, really. The, the, someone called God the, the hound of heaven. He's going to chase you down. And not only that, with the Holy Spirit, he gets our attention. And he might not knock you down, but progressively in this thing called sanctification, where God is changing you, he, re he reorients your life and your purposes as he's conforming you into his image. And that really is what happened to Paul. Uh, Paul's reoriented purpose was to plant churches, and one of those churches happens to be in Philippi. So a little bit, a uh, little bit about Philippi. Philippi is is an ancient city. Um, it's a province of Macedonia today. It's northern central Greece. Uh, Philippi was along this superhighway in the first century uh, that connected all the Roman colonies to itself, and Philippi happened to be on the kind of the very end of that that highway. And Paul, in his newfound career of, 
uh, advancing God's kingdom, bringing people to faith, starting churches. Uh, he plants churches along this important path, and he does it particularly in urban centers. Paul's focus was on cities. And, uh, and here's one of the reasons why this book is important to us, because it, taught, it, it, it shows us what it looks like to start a church in a prominent city. Uh, retired pastor and author Tim Keller says, uh, th- there's something about big cities that, that makes them important. And it's not just their population or their, their size, their, their bigness. There's actually four characteristics of cities that make them, uh, that make them key and important. It's, firstly, it's density, it's intensity, it's diversity, and it's openness. And, and those are um, things that you understand without me really under, uh, explaining it, but he, here it is. Density, how many residents you have per acre. Think about the six million people that are squeezed into a relatively small amount of space in D.C. and the surrounding area. Intensity, the activities that are within, just the busyness. For those of us that are transplants to D.C., one of the things that we immediately notice when we come to D.C. is just the, the busyness of, of, of this area. It, we're busy because of our profession. We're busy because it's, I don't know. I don't even know why we're busy, right? I mean, it's just like we're busy, much busier than, than if you perhaps came from a rural area. There's diversity. In other words, there's different types of ethnic, ethnic groups represented here. And then there's personal openness. Personal openness being because there's so much diversity here in a place like D.C., uh, the cultures and the things that happen within the diversity of the structure here uh, makes us not just aware of, but accepting of other people and, and what they bring to the area. And so someone once said, as, as the city goes, think uh, art, commerce, music, learning, so goes the things that surround it. And so as the big cities in America go, think New York to uh, all the things happening in New York that spans out, not just across the United States, but really around the world. As the city goes, so goes the society around it. Cities then typically represent cultural centrality. And I'm not trying to dismiss those of you that came from a rural area as if they're, they're nothing, but I'm comparing it to the life of a, of a big city, of a, of a metropolitan area. In a rural area, things are kind of homogenous, right? You have sort of like the same kinds of people. Life is stable and, you know, it, the, the culture is it's not ever changing. As opposed to that, I mean, in, in the big city, uh, not only do you have everything going on, but really you have the world right within three square miles of, of wherever you are. That's one of the things that um, that amazes me really about where we are right here in Kingstown. I mean, even this part of D.C., there's, there's the, the world is literally within three miles of where we are. We don't have to go a long way to, to, to see and to experience all the cultures of our world. They're right here where we live. And so the question that we want to sort of entertain today is how did Paul get to Philippi? And for that, we can't read Philippians. We have to go to the book of Acts. So turn in your Bible to... Uh, back left a couple of pages, actually maybe 30 or so pages, at least that's what it is in my Bible, to Acts chapter 16. We're going to read a few verses here today and give ourselves the backdrop of, uh, of what happened to create this church in Philippi. So at the end of Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, uh, both apostles, had uh, completed Paul's first missionary journey. They had gone and uh, started churches uh, 
preaching the gospel and bringing people to faith in Jesus. And at the end of that, they ended up in Antioch, a prominent city. And uh, they're just uh, remembering and celebrating all that God had done through them to start churches and bring people to faith. And they're planning their second missionary journey. And as often happens between people and even Christians, Paul and Barnabas get in an argument. So there's, there's this guy named John Mark. John Mark is one of the, uh, one of the actually he's a prominent person in the Bible because he wrote the, the book of Mark uh, based upon Peter's uh, understanding of Jesus and his gospel. And uh, John Mark had done what young men sometimes do. He, he grew faint in the middle of a mission trip, and he wanted to go home. He got homesick, and so John Mark leaves Paul's first missionary trip, and Paul got a little perturbed about it. He's like, this guy has no endurance. And, uh, and so they're preparing for their second missionary journey, and Barnabas wants John Mark to come. Paul's like, there is absolutely no way we're bringing this young man. And they split over it. They could not come to an agreement over whether or not to bring John Mark. And so what happens is Barnabas takes John Mark, and they go to Cyprus in the middle of uh, the Mediterranean, and Paul decides to partner with a, uh, a young man by the name of Silas, and they head a different way. And that really is what happens. And so we're going to jump into Acts 16 at verse number 6. And they went through the region of Persia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a colony, uh, and a Roman colony. We remain in the city some days. And so here's what's going on as we enter this uh, this text in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Barnabas are trying to figure out where they're supposed to go. So they had plotted out uh, their second missionary journey. And they, of course, their intent to visit big cities along the Roman superhighway, find people who don't know Jesus, preach the gospel, and bring people to faith and start churches. That's all Paul is trying to do. And uh, the, the trip is getting overthrown because God gets a vote. And so I don't know if you've ever noticed Maybe you have. There's all these Bibles in the back. There's all these maps in the back of your Bible. Y'all ever notice that? Y'all know sometimes, I mean, I don't look at these Bible, these maps much, but they're actually helpful because they're actually recounting for you in vis, uh, visual form some of the things that you're reading as you read the text. And so go to the map. This is a map of Paul's uh, first and second and third missionary journey. And let's see, the... The purple color, you can't tell it too far, is Paul's second missionary journey. So at the end of Acts 15 and the beginning of Acts chapter 16, this map is displaying in this purple line what Paul is doing. And so very simply, they start at Antioch because that's where they finished their first missionary journey, and they're plotting out what they want to do. And here's what Paul decides he wants to do. He wants to go uh, through to Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, he picks up Timothy, a man who becomes prominent as a mentor of, Timothy, of, of Paul, and Timothy plants churches. He, he picks him up in Lystra and Derby, and then he intends to go into Asia. And the text says 
the Holy Spirit prevented him from going into Asia. So what does Paul do? Uh, well, let's go up to Bithynia. So he goes up north to Bithynia, and the text says the Holy Spirit prevented them from going into Bithynia. And so he bypasses Asia, and he goes across uh, a territory called Mysia, which would be slightly north of where you see Asia is, and he ends up in Troas, okay? Macedonia. And from Troas, he goes to uh, Samothrace, Neapolis, and he ends up in Philippi. They're just trying to figure out the will of God. That's all they're trying to do. And, um, and the, the, the Holy Spirit is getting a vote. He's deciding, I, I don't want you to go there. And so I'm just going to block it. And we aren't told exactly what they felt, what they experienced in terms of trying to go from point A to point B. But we do know that they felt that they were prevented. Either it was in their spirit, and it's like, this, this doesn't feel right, or it might have been a natural obstacle. And what I think that the, the Bible is telling us is there's a lesson there. Sometimes we make up our mind, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to do it that way. And you get a little resistance. Either there's physical obstacles in your way or you just feel something in your heart. It's like, you know what? This doesn't feel right. And I think the lesson is maybe God's in it. Maybe sometimes I think maybe when you've decided you're going to. I mean, that's what we do, don't we? We decide it's like I'm doing it this way. I'm going to do it tomorrow. And that's just how it's going to be. And either someone comes and, and gives us like, I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me. I don't I, don't tell me I can't do it this way. Uh, but maybe God is in it. And I think this is this is encouragement to me that these are two apostles and they're simply trying to figure out the will of God for something that he really wants them to do. They've got their own way of wanting to do it. And God is saying, no, don't do it this way. I want you to do it this way. And so in verse 10, we read, they concluded, in other words, they put together, after all these obstacles did not allow them to do what they thought was the right thing to do, uh, they concluded that God had called them to do something else. And what was that? God had called them to go to Macedonia, in other words, this area around uh, Neapolis, Samothrace, ending, ending up in Philippi to preach the gospel. But here's what's going on underneath the text. So the 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 plot underneath the text is the gospel writer Luke is, is doing something for us. He's showing us how this church at Philippi actually started. He's, and he's telling us a couple things. And I want you to keep this in mind as we work through this, uh, this few uh, verses in Acts. He's trying to show us that God uses ordinary people. You don't have to be extraordinary in anything for God to use you. God uses ordinary people. Here's the second thing. God uses diverse people to build his church. And I think that's the bigger lesson. God wants us to look like a bag of Skittles. I mean, that's, that's the church. The church does look like that. It just doesn't look like that sometimes on Sunday morning. Uh, I was saying that to the, actually we were praying up front a couple weeks ago. And I, I don't know, I, was, I use this, this analogy a lot. I want, I, want the, I want our church, transit church, to be like a, like a bag of Skittles. And, uh, and Justin in the back on the soundboard is like, Jeff, I, I, I don't actually like that analogy because I'm kind of brown, like light brown, and there are no light brown Skittles. <laughs> and I said, well, I, was like, I, I don't want us to be like a bag of M&Ms because that's not enough colors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there, is no, there are no blue people except in that, that crazy movie with, you know, the movie uh, Avatar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
God uses ordinary people and he uses diverse people to build this church. And, and here it is. We meet the first core group member of this of this church plant in Philippi in verse 13. Verse 13. Look at that. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate and at, uh, to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul uh, was said by Paul. And so uh, here's some interesting, I mean, the, the text is giving us some interesting information because here, here's Paul's rhythm whenever he went to any city. He would go into the city, him and his entourage, they would go to a synagogue, they would preach the gospel, trying to win over those who were like him, Jews. And then he would go into the, the regular parts of the city and try to reach Gentiles, trying to you know, preach the gospel, trying to bring people to faith. Interestingly here, we don't see anything written about a synagogue. You know, this, here's why. There's no synagogue in, in Philippi. This is a Roman colony filled with, it's Greek, obviously Greek uh, 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 plurality of, of, of God's kinds of a place. Uh, and principally, there's no synagogue here because you had to have at least 10 males to have a synagogue. And so here's the issue at Philippi. There aren't even 10 men of Jewish faith to, to create a synagogue. And, and honestly, that's, that's a problem that the church still uh, continues to have. Not enough men in the church, right? We got not just, not our church, but a lot of churches, countrywide, worldwide, women flocking to the faith, and you got men just sitting at home watching football or whatever. We need more men, godly men, in the church. And so the text tells us a couple things about this first lady. She's from Thyatira, which means she's Asian. Uh, she lives in Philippi. She has people that live with her, which means she has a little bit of money. Um, she's dealing in purple goods, which means she dealt with people who were royalty. Uh, only people, the only people who wore purple colored in those days were people who were not just affluent, but who had a, a royal background. And so we can assume, commentators tell us, that Lydia is wealthy. In our day, we call her a CEO. She has her own, she has her own business. Now, the text goes on to say that she's spiritual. It uses these words. She's a worshiper of God, which means she's not Jewish. She's not Christian, but very likely Lydia is one of those people that's living a very moral life, but she's dissatisfied. She's one of those kinds of people, perhaps like we find in D.C. She's got everything she wants. She's got a nice car. Well, she ain't, she ain't got no car. She's got nice foot transportation on her, on her feet. She's got a nice house. She's, she has everything that she needs, yet she's dissatisfied with life. And what, and what do we see her doing? She's going to, she's trying to, to enter into something that will satisfy her. And so she's, uh, she's clung to the Jewish faith, trying to become a proselyte. And, and her life is empty. And here's what Paul does. He begins to talk to her, the text tells us. And here, here's, we have to pay attention to what the, the Bible is telling us. Because Paul's method uh, with how he... Um, talks with people and what he does with people, it, it, it tells us something. Uh, one of the things that we learn in this, protect, this text in particular is uh, God uses different methods to reach different people with the gospel. 
And so if you're one that knows a lot of people and you're one that's, uh, you know, you feel led to share your faith with other people, the truth is the same words, the same technique to, to share your faith doesn't work on all people. And here we see Paul uh, cleverly um, using different methods to reach different kinds of people. And so what's his method here? He's having a Bible study. He's opening the word and he's talking to Lydia. He's having a spiritual discussion. And what I imagine he's doing with her is opening the words that she had already read. He's, he's talking about the Old Testament, the law, the prophets. Particularly, he's probably focusing in on the sacrifices and, and he's uh, illuminating what these words say and saying, all, all this stuff here that you've read about the sacrifices and the priests offering uh, unblemished animals to God and spilling its blood and that atoning for the sins of the people, he's like, that's all about Jesus. You know, this, this Messiah that you seek, this thing that you want to satisfy you, it, it's all pointing to Jesus. So much so that here's where Paul's words land on her. Verse 14, it says, the Lord opened her heart. She's become a Christian. And so Paul was reaching her right, right where, where she was. And that ended up, uh, she ended up being the first convert to this Philippian church. We meet the second convert in verse 16. Skip forward a couple verses. Verse 16, as we're going to the district to pray, as we're going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Okay, if we were to read on, this would be the account of a slave girl. Uh, she's probably Greek, commentators tell us, because uh, of where she is, and we aren't giving any, any other kind of detail about her ethnicity. It says a girl, so she's, she's probably very young. I'm thinking a barely a teen, if that. She's a slave, so she's at the lower end of the totem pole. I mean, the lowest of low. Spiritually, this girl is out of control. Out of control, meaning she's controlled or, or re-tormented by demonic spirits. Verse 16 says, she has a spirit of divination. If you're old enough to remember this, think Dion Work and the Psychic Friends Network. <laughs> Y'all remember that? But here's the thing. You know, in that, like, it's like a palm reader. Like, you, like, on my way to work at the church office, I pass by this house that has signs for a psychic, and I, pr I pray for that. I pray for whoever's in there every, every time I pass it, because I want, I mean, that's witchcraft. And I want God not just not to kill the person. I want God to save them, like, like tear that occultist stuff down um, so it's not prominent to the community and, and reach this person for the Lord so they can use that same spiritual gift in a supernatural way, you know, in the, in the body of Christ. And so I mean, and this is real stuff. And so. Uh, she has this kind of gift. We don't know why she was enslaved. Maybe she was an orphan. Maybe she uh, was, it, it, some gift came out of her. This, you know, this, this is witch, witchcraft kind of torment kind of thing coming out of her. Demons using her and her parents didn't know what to do with it. And so maybe they sold her into slavery. But what we do know is, is her life likely was a mess. I mean, just, she's a spiritual mess and she's a slave. And, and again, we got to take note in what Paul does to deal with this young lady. Uh, like, the, like what he does with Lydia, he touches her mind. He opens the scriptures. Paul doesn't do the same thing with, with this slave girl. Guess what he does? He has a spiritual encounter. He has to, he has to use the power of God against the, power, the, 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 the demonic power that's in her. 
He exercises spiritual, spiritual power in the spiritual realm. He casts out the demon. In Jesus' name, be gone. And if you come from a, a nice, quiet, trite Christian church experience, and you're like, well, that can't be real. I mean, well, it is. This, I mean, this is, this is witchcraft. It's demonic power on display. And, and I'm not trying to give prominence to that. I'm just talking about what the text is talking about, the background of it. But you got to know there's no power of hell. That, can, that, that has more power than the power of God. And we see Paul exercising the power of God to cast out this, this, this devilish power uh, here in the text. Interestingly, it looks like Paul is not necessarily trying to cast this demon out. He knows she's uh, demonically possessed. He's not trying to cast it out. He's trying to bypass her. But in verse 17, it looks like, I mean, she's doing something to annoy him. Look at verse 17. And she followed Paul... And Paul and Silas are crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And the text only gives us that one time. Very likely, she's saying that over and over and over again. For those of you parents that have young kids, it's like, it's like when, they, when they figure out that you're, you're mom, it's like, mom, mom, mama, mommy, mom, 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 mom. It's like, they're your kids and you love them, right? But doesn't that annoy you to death? Thank God my name is not mom. And so Paul gets annoyed, but here's why he gets annoyed. He's not annoyed that she's telling the truth because this is a truth. He's annoyed because she's mocking him. She's mocking God. This is a Greek pantheistic, pluralistic culture. And so there's this pantheon of of people in this day that claim that their God was the way to salvation. And so there's uh, numerous Greek gods And she was essentially saying this Jesus was just like all those other Greek gods. And Paul's reaction is saying, H-E double hockey stick, no, absolutely not. This is Jesus, King of kings, one true God, Lord of lords, and I'm going to deliver you from the bondage of hell that you're in. In Jesus' name, come out. He exercises the demon, and this girl is set free. Amen. She's set free. But that causes another problem because she's a slave girl owned by devilish men who are using her, using her fortune telling ability to to make money. And when this demon is cast out, they have no one. At, no, they have they I mean, they don't have a person anymore that can make money for them. And so what do they do? They they cause a riot. They get they beat Paul and Silas up and they get them put in jail. And that's where we meet the third Remember, jump down to verse 25. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So Paul and Silas are in jail, and I, I don't know if I, if you, I, I'm not reading the verses sequentially, so you, uh, we've missed a little bit of detail, but that sounds kind of cool, right? I mean, they're, they're in jail, and they still have the wherewithal to sing hymns to God. So that's, that's, that's pretty cool, right? Ain't cool. Back up couple verses. L- listen to what it says in verse 22. All right, so first they're in the crowd. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore garments off them and gave, the, gave orders to beat them with rods. So they've been beaten. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Verse 24, having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. All right, so this is like, this is not just pretty jail. Like you're behind bars and you got a little bench, maybe a toilet and 
life is hunky-dory, only wait a couple days, your lawyer's going to get you out post-bail. This is like in a prison, they're, they're in solitary confinement, and they're being tortured. They have been tortured, and they're being tortured. Their, their arms are stretched, I mean, limb to limb. They're lying on their backs. They've already been beaten, and they're being pulled from one extremity to the next so that it hurts. And under these circumstances, Paul and Silas are singing hymns to God. And that's why you should be feel, feel guilty. Because some of y'all had problems singing this morning in worship. Right? You had an argument going, coming in the car with your wife or one of your kids was acting up. You didn't get to Starbucks in time to get your, whatever your favorite latte is. You come in and the coffee's gone because you didn't get here early enough to get it. Like, all these things are going on. You come in, it's like, I ain't singing that song because I don't like that song. Abby, pick a different song. <laughs> you know, all those kind of things. Paul and Silas are in jail, stretched from limb to limb, and they're singing hymns to God. All right, I'm coming off my soapbox. Here's a, and, and, and they're being overseen by a jailer. And we don't know a lot about the jailer. Actually, we do. The, the text unfolds a little bit about him. But here's what commentators would say this man is like. He's an ex-Roman soldier because the, uh, Rome would take uh, not necessarily citizens, but former soldiers after they've done their duty and put them in places like this, uh, give them civil service jobs. Uh, he wouldn't have been making a lot of money from this. I mean, he would have been scrapping his money uh, just to make a, a living and, and put food on the table. But this guy's definitely hard. Why do I say that? I mean, he's torturing people for a living. That's what he does on a daily basis. He's going to be hard, uh, sort of hard to spiritual things, definitely disinterested, disinterested in the singing. Why do I say that? He's sleeping. He's like nodding off while the, all these prisoners are locked up. And again, here's the, the approach that God, that Paul uses to reach this guy. In fact, God helps him out. God sends an earthquake to the prison. God wants Paul and Silas to be free. And so God sends an earthquake. It looses their shackles, not just Paul and Silas, but all the prisoners. There's probably a ruckus of some sort. Jail doors fly open and the jailer is awakened to all this noise and assuming that all the prisoners have gone, that they've been set free by what, what Lord knows what. Uh, he takes his own sword and is about to kill himself. And Paul's like, stop, don't do it. We're still here. We haven't gone anywhere. And Paul ultimately saved this, guy, saved this guy's life. And I'm sure a few more words ensue. And the guy says, like, well, what do I have to do, sirs, to be saved? Third core group member of the church at Philippi. And so I don't know if you're keeping track. There's, there's three members of this congregation. Actually, there's more than three. They're, they're probably like a, a 20 or 30 person core group at this point. You got an Asian female business owner and her family because she had a house and probably, I mean, she started having church in her house. There's a former slave demon possessed girl that's now free, worshiping Jesus. There's a hardened soldier turned prisoner guard and his household that have been baptized and are now worshiping Jesus. And the, that, folks, is the church. At least that's the church at Philippi. And I say amen to that. Because I think about how our church started. It's like, I, I, I go with that. Some crazy people. But that really, I mean, that's, that's the lesson here. And I, and I love this because I'm a church planner, and I see this in our, our humble beginnings as a church. God uses ordinary, diverse, read, messed up people to do extraordinary things to build his church. And that's the precursor to this book 
of Philippians. And so here's what Paul is doing in, in this book. Of course, today is just an overview. He's, he's writing some practical theology uh, to this now 10-year-old church. And so what we're reading is, uh, is 10 years past Paul actually being there on the ground and, and starting the church. Paul keeps in contact with them over these 10 years. He writes them letters. Uh, on this particular occasion, Paul has sent them a letter of friendship to the church, and he sends it through a, a fellow uh, named Epaphroditus. And uh, Epaphroditus has been a help to him. And particularly in this whole letter, he's firstly thanking them for a financial gift. He's saying, thank you for partnering with me in the gospel for all these years and helping me in my mission of going from city to city, traveling in all, all around the Roman province, and trying to bring people to faith. And then he exhorts them on their current disposition as a people of God, as a church, and he's uh, really encouraging them in the gospel for themselves, but also to love their city. And so that's what the book of Philippians is about. This is a special book of the Bible, and here's why. It's the only book that Paul does not have some negative things to say about the church. They're not the Galatians that have Judaizers coming and trying to... uh, 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 preach heresy about what the gospel is. It's not uh, Colossians that has uh, a bunch of supernatural stuff going on that he has to that Paul has to correct. Uh, it, it it doesn't it doesn't have a bunch of weird stuff in it. They're not a jacked up church like the the church at Corinth. This is a, a a decent church that understood the gospel and that were trying to live their life in the likes of it. Yet what Paul uh, neatly does in this letter is he answers some questions that they were asking, but that also we're probably asking too 20 centuries later. Questions like, I mean, how do I actually live out my faith in today's culture? How do I be in the world yet not of the world? How can I be a part of the culture in D.C. yet be the, the Christian God has called me to be? And here's what Paul says, First uh, Philippians 1.27, I don't let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We're going to look at several verses here in the next couple of minutes. Here's what I like about this verse. It tells us that, I mean, you just, Christianity and growth in the gospel, sanctification doesn't happen by osmosis. You just lie on my bed. Like, all right, God, give it to me. There's some striving. We've got to do something to get it. And it's not an individual sport. It, it's, it, it takes a community. And, and we're going to look in a couple of weeks at what this striving side by side. It's like a football team. We're going to go and watch the Redskins beat the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> we're going to watch the Redskins like pummel the Eagles today. And the, and the, and the line, offensive defense, they're going to be side by side, defending, you know, defending and offending against their, their enemy on the, on the opposite side of the line. But they're going to be, um, we do it for the, the uh, advancement of the gospel. Here's another question. How do you let your light shine? The Bible says that we're supposed to be a city on a hill, right? But how do you do that amidst a culture that, that's not friendly to you? How do, we, how do we let our light shine amidst persecution? Some of you are the only Christian in your family. Some of you are the only witness that you have in your neighborhood, in your school, you know, uh, amongst your friends. And Paul says to us in this regard that we should be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. How do you suffer well? That's a hard word even to say. Nobody wants to suffer. But here's what Paul says, Philippians 1, 129. 
For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's a great verse, but it hurts, doesn't it? That, that word granted means gift. And so here's what Paul is saying. We're going to look at this in two weeks. He's saying it's, been, it's God's gift to you that you should believe in Jesus. It's, it's, that's a gift to you. But it's also God's gift that you should suffer. Swallow hard. You know, I don't want that. How do, you, how do you go through hard things of life and yet not be bitter at God? It's, it's wonderful when life is going well, but what do you do? Who do you turn to when life is, is not going quite well like you wanted to do? Paul says 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. How do you avoid becoming a self-righteous religious person? Of course, I'm using religion in a negative way here. Paul, uh, Philippians 3.8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Here's the, the, the hard words he's encouraging us with is that it's good to have stuff, but having Jesus is better. And, and there's a place where you can be that, although stuff isn't bad, that if you had to choose of having nothing, having everything in life go wrong, choose Jesus. Choose, choose his way, his will for your life, and, and everything for you in regards to him. How do you work out conflict within your family or your, or your friend structure? Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What would happen if the whole world, I mean, even just Christians would do that? It would be a different world. How do you pray so that you can stop worrying so much? Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How do we learn to be content? I'm going to hit you with this in around Christmas time. Right when you're buying a whole bunch of presents for you, your kids, and your loved ones. How do I learn to just be okay with my stuff? I'm not salivating over your stuff. How do I live within the lifestyle that God has provided for me and not for you? Philippians 4, 11 and 19. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Sampling of verses. We're going to cover all those in a little bit of detail over the next few months. Um, and, and what these sampling of verses is showing us is that Paul's letter to the church at Philippi touches on some very important theological issues, issues that he covers uh, in a little bit of detail in other letters that he writes. And there's too many to name, but let me give you three dominant themes that are going to come up over and over in this book. And the first is the incarnation. You know, some of the, the most beautiful words in all the Bible are in the book of Philippians. Chapter 2, verse 5 through 11 in particular. Let me read a few verses of this. Here's what Paul says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in form, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beautiful words. It's actually a hymn that the, the first century church used to sing. And here, Paul is presenting the essence of the gospel. And here's the gospel. We cannot buy our way or work our way up to God. So here's what God does. He comes down. He comes down in the form of Jesus, and he comes down in the most humble way. The creator of all joins his creation, and he becomes like us. The, the, the theological word that we use is he condescended. He, he emptied himself of all that he was so that he could be like us. Ultimately, he lived like us so that he could die like us, take our death to give you his life. And that's the gospel, folks. Incarnation. The second is partnership. This letter is written to Christians, and, and Paul will use this word a couple times, but the theme spans the whole chapter, the word partnership. And partnership has the connotation of covenant, a binding agreement between two or more persons that's, uh, that's meant to be eternal for which God is setting the standard. And that's the partnership. It's the relationship that you enter when you become a Christian. There's no such thing as an individual Christian off on the side, doing your own spiritual thing by yourself. When you, come in, when you come to faith in Jesus, you join, you partner with the wider body of Christ. You become a covenant member. Now, the truth is, this is how most churches work. We come in and we're consumers. It's like going to a mall. I'm searching for a church that's going to satisfy me. It's got to be perfect. The, the, the worship has to be perfect. The coffee has to be perfect. Oh, my God, they don't serve free coffee. I can't go to this church. The kids' ministry has to be perfect. The pastor has to be perfect. The preaching has to be perfect. The people got to be perfect. We're consumer-minded. We want, we want to have it our way like Burger King. How can a church serve me? God didn't call you that. He called you to be participants. More than that, he called you to be partners. Nick used this word last week in our community, community series. He used the term missional Christian. It's recognizing that God has a mission, making disciples, and he uses people like us to find people who don't know Jesus and to invite them into that disciple-making process. God has a mission, and the church is the arm, the agent that he uses to, to accomplish the mission to advance his kingdom. And so it, it's not the church serving you. It should be, how can I serve the church and its purposes? And that is partnership. Thank, uh, and lastly, there's thankfulness. Well, I should say joy. Paul, Paul is in prison when he's writing, which is crazy, isn't it? He's in prison, and the word or word phrase that we will hear almost 40 times throughout this letter, more than any other word or idea in the book of Philippians, is the word joy, thankfulness. And here's Why is he thankful? Why is he writing or seeming to convey so much joy? And I think what Paul is sensing about this church at Philippi is they get it. They get what the church is supposed to be. They get what the church is supposed to do. The church is not a vendor of religious goods and services. The church is not just a place where you hear a good sermon, you hear some good music, and then you go about your way. They saw the church as a place to get equipped and then go out and do their part. What's that? Change the world. Find somebody that don't know Jesus and just let your natural life ooze over so that they would love the God that you love. And Paul prays for them about that, that they would do that more and more. And so, personal note, here's why I like this letter. This is a church plant. I'm almost done. This is a church plant. 
we're a church plant. And so this speaks to me in, in so many ways. Um, here, this is, I guess, really, in a sense, every church that you encounter in the New Testament is a church that was planted, that started. But this is, only, this is one of the only ones the Holy Spirit gives us a, a little detail, I mean, some, some good detail into the, the background of how it actually started. And we're reading it here in Acts. And again, we get to see them grow through the words that Paul uses in this letter. And so um, we see the gospel here. We see the gospel at work. We see the circumstances that led to building this church, which gives me encouragement and hope for how God is building our church. I mean, you all don't know this. Only a few of y'all were here. This church started in North Carolina with nobody but me and my family, a hope and a dream. And they got tacked on a few military families. And guess what? The army and the, the army sent them elsewhere. They are, they're not here anymore. Well, except for Dre and Febby. But y'all were y'all were Navy, Navy Army. Right? By the way, Febby got promoted to Lieutenant Colonel yesterday. Yeah, yeah. I almost forgot that, Febby. Yes, ma'am. Salute. But we see the gospel here. We see the sovereignty of God put this disparate group of people coming from all different walks of life and diversities. And, and he brings them together to, bring the, to create this beautiful tapestry of the body of Christ that comes together stride by stride, you know, side by side, striving for the gospel. And they do it not only in amongst themselves in their city, but it spreads, you know, through Paul and his words to, to all the surrounding area. And I pray that God would do that same thing for us. That we would see God sending, you know, sending, uh, God sends Jesus, Jesus in the spirit. The spirit creates the apostles who creates the church. The church is us, people like us who God uses to go out. And I mean, he's sending us into our communities and our families to bring people to faith. And that's what Jesus does. And so lastly, let me, let me finish with this. How does this apply to us? This beginning to the, the Corinthian church. I mean, I see it in our own beginning. There's, there's Lydia's here in this room. There's Lydia's here in our city, in our region. There's people who are key, influential people, perhaps even affluent, that have everything they, they need. They have everything they want. They've got a nice house and cars and lush green grass and beautiful kids, but their hearts are empty and they need Jesus. Here in this room, but out in our, in our region. We've got people who are enslaved. We're enslaved to our stuff. We're enslaved to our phones. We're enslaved to success. We're enslaved to, to titles and badges and tabs. We're enslaved to some deeper stuff, like some, you know, the, 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 uh, the porn and the drugs. Those, all those kinds of things exist in our church and outside in our arena. And guess what? Jesus wants to come in with the power of God and set us free. But there's also people like the Philippian jailer, people who are dis, I mean, just trying to make a living, trying to stay on the narrow and do the right thing, disinterested in religion because it can't put food on my table. Those people are in our church and they're out in our region. And God wants to, he wants to send us into, into these places in natural ways to affect them. All these people have great needs, but their greatest need is Jesus. Here's what encouraged me about this letter. Paul is, is going to, I mean, he's, he's given superlatives about the church at Philippi. And here's what he stresses. He expresses, he expresses his confidence uh, in everything that's going on in their lives. The success of the church, people coming to faith in their city, 
uh, their lives being transformed by the gospel and their partnership with him in the gospel. But here's what he puts up in front of them. He says, guess what, folks? My confidence is not in you and your ability to keep this church going and to have all this kinds of success. My confidence is in God. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that God will bring to completion everything that he started. In them, but he's writing this letter to us too. Think about all those things that God has started, that you know he started in you, that you haven't seen the finish line yet. It's like, Lord, can you do this? Can you do this in my own heart? Can you do this in my kids? Can you do this in my spouse? He's going to complete everything he started. So this is going to be a good book. Our hope is not in our good works, but in the good work that only Jesus can do in and through us. So may this, may we see those things happening as we work through this book together, but more importantly, as we go forward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would touch your people where they need it, uh, that you would do what only you can do, and by your spirit, that you would draw us to yourself and that you change hearts. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.